Hello, I'm Nick Cater and this is The Water Cooler. For those of us who are still struggling to understand the cultural undercurrents that gave us Brexit, Trump and the Australian federal election, or the SCO miracle, as some people call it, our guest today has a perspective that I think will give us a lot of clarity. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at New York's Stern School of Business who specialises in the study of morality and moral emotions. I'm delighted to say that Jonathan is joining us on the line today from New York ahead of his visit to Sydney and Melbourne in July, which we'll be saying a bit more about later. Jonathan, welcome to Water Cooler. Well, thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Look, I have to confess straight off that I'm, I'm a, I've been a fan of your work ever since the publication of your second book, The Righteous Mind. For those who haven't read it, uh, could you just give me a brief summary of the contents of that book? So I study morality, and I, my early research and my dissertation uh, were on how morality varies across countries and how um, there is a human nature. Uh, we are all products of evolution, yet morality varies a lot across centuries and across countries. So I was doing research in India and Brazil, and in the 1990s in the United States, left and right were coming apart, uh, were polarizing, were beginning to live in different worlds and have different facts. And so as, this, as the political polarization increased and as the Democrats kept losing, and at the time I was very much on the left, now I'm, I'm in no party, I'm a social scientist and just trying to study what's going on. But back then I was a partisan Democrat on the left, and I couldn't stand it that George W. Bush won two elections when I thought he should have won zero elections. So I began doing, uh, changing my research to study not how morality varies across countries, but how it varies across political groups within a country. And my goal was to help the Democrats win. It was to help the Democrats learn how to speak about morality because the left is often challenged on this. The right has access to all kinds of moral intuition about loyalty and patriotism and sanctity and authority, topics that the left is often uncomfortable speaking about. Uh, the left tends to be more focused on care and compassion and equality, and these are all important virtues. But in politics, the right has a built-in advantage. So I began to write this book exploring what moral psychology can do to help explain political conflict. And in the course of actually reading conservative writing, I'd never read it. I, you know, like most professors, I was on the left. I had no exposure to conservative thinking. And when I committed to actually reading the best conservative writers, not the worst, uh, and watching conservative TV, I realized that, my God, you actually have to listen to people who have a different perspective than you in order to understand anything complicated and interesting. So in doing the work for The Righteous Mind, I came to respect uh, conservatives and what we call libertarians here, people who are really focused on the free market and individual freedom. And so The Righteous Mind uh, has three parts. The first part is about how um, intuition drive our, our moral judgment. We're not really very – we don't reason very much. We're, our reasoning is mostly post hoc. The second part is about the six different moral foundations, care, fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And the third part is about how we're tribal and groupish. We evolved for war and we evolved for tribal religion. And so how do we live in the modern world with this ancient programming? John, I think one thing that struck me about it, because I was like you, I was puzzled by why we had almost two 
different worlds within a world. You know that people there were people who lived in two different moral universes, had two different sets of references, and both thought the other. You know, struggled to understand the other. You used a word there which has stuck with me: dumbfoundment. That when people are confronted yeah. with a point of view that is opposite to their own and challenges their fundamental, uh, you know, the fundamental elements of their belief. They are literally dumbfounded, you know. They stuck for words, and it's it struck me since on 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 three occasions uh, we've seen this in action. The first, I think, you'd recognise was during when, when Donald Trump was elected president, and and the Democrats and the Hillary Clinton supporters were literally dumbfounded. It seems to me, and I'm, I'm not sure they've even got their voice back. Yeah. So there's two different ways in which you can be dumbfounded. The kind that I originally studied was when you ask someone about a situation that feels wrong, but they can't explain why. And so my early research, I used, a, I invented a bunch of stories like a brother and sister who are traveling together on vacation in France from college, and they decide to have sex, and they enjoy it, but you know, they use two pumps of birth control. So I used a variety of, of stories about food and sex taboos, a story about a man who a woman who uses the American flag to clean her toilet and nobody sees. And so in these cases, many people have an instant gut reaction saying, that's wrong, that's terrible. But then I say, well, why? What's wrong with it? And then they make up a reason. And then if you knock down the reason, then they're dumbfounded because they don't actually have a reason. So that's how I learned that morality is really based on gut feelings, not on reason. So that's the original kind of dumbfounding. Now then there's a second kind where you and your group see things so clearly and you have so much evidence that you're right that you just cannot believe that anyone could see things differently than you do. And besides, I don't know anyone who voted for Trump is what any of us say. I live here in New York City. And in fact, I saw the first, I live in a very progressive part of the city, it's Greenwich Village. I was walking through the park today and there was a man there with a flag that said Trump 2020. And I've lived here for uh, you know not for eight years now, and I've never seen a Republican or any sort of image that is in any way conservative or Republican. It's the first time. I was surprised. If you live in New York City, if you live in Manhattan, I should say, you probably don't know anybody who voted the other way. So we can be dumbfounded or certainly uh, we, we cannot explain because our social group has blinded us. We're, we're caught up in a, in a filter bubble. We're caught up in a moral matrix like from the movie The Matrix, The the Matrix is a consensual hallucination. And we just cannot believe that anyone doesn't see it the way we do. The media environment has made it so much easier to be lost in your cocoon, lost in your matrix, than it was, say, 20 years ago. John, John, that seems to me to be exactly described not only what happened with, with the Trump election, where, where you know you either read the New York Times or you, you, you listened to Fox, but you didn't do both, or... Uh, the, the Brexit de- debate in in the UK, where you know there was very much a one side opinion uh, concentrated in certain parts of the country, and, the, and and they they would they were just more than surprised when when the election didn't go the way they went. Um, and then here recently, you may not have caught up with our recent uh, federal election, but the polls and the commentary. No, I have, I have. We, we're calling it the SCO miracle, by the way, after ScoMo, the, uh, the, the the nickname for the Prime Minister, who was completely, you know, his re-election was completely unexpected by large sections of the media and population, although I think um, others who yeah. are following it more closely saw it differently. Is that is that what you mean? Is that the dumbfoundment when people literally don't understand what the other side is saying or thinking about? Yes, 
Yes. So there, these surprises are so common now. And I think there's two reasons why the surprise usually goes to the right. I mean, occasionally the left outperforms expectations, but more typically it's the right that, that outperforms. There's two reasons for this. One is that the, the media, the people who write and, and produce shows, are increasingly concentrated in just the, the most progressive parts of each country. So in the United States, there used to be journalists and newspaper reporters all over the country, but now there are very few newspapers, and almost everybody is in New York or right along the Pacific coast, not even inland in California, but right along the coast of California. Um, and so uh, they just don't, as human beings, they're just not exposed to to people differently. So that's that's one thing, which I presume is happening in Australia as well. Very much so, yeah. Uh, the, other is that the other issue is that there is a kind of, um, in, in many in many public places, or let's say in companies or in school, if you're on the left, you can say what you believe. You can say what your policy positions are. And so in the United States, if someone were to say, well, I'm pro-choice, and I think we should uh, have open borders, you can say that, and you will not lose your job anywhere. You will not be fired anywhere for saying that. But if you're on the right in the United States, there are many places where if you say what the normal conservative position is, you could be in big trouble. Uh, if you say, well, I, you know, I favor uh, you know, border enforcement, and, and I think we should, uh, you know, have, we should really get control of the border, I mean, you could be called a racist. You could be called somebody who is in favor of torturing children. So there's a woman um, named Sarah Sobieraj who has a book called The Outrage Industry. And she asks, why is it that right-wing talk radio has done so well in America that the left was never able to come up with a, anything similar? And the answer, she says, is because if you're on the left in America, you can say what you think. You don't have to find a community uh, on the radio. Uh, but if you're on the right in America, there's a much greater attraction because you can't say what you think in many settings. Uh, and so they congregate. It's almost like a church. It's when people come to right-wing talk and right-wing television, almost like a church. Like, oh, finally, I'm, I'm around people who I can, I can let my hair down. I can say what I think. So I think there are a variety of reasons why people lie to pollsters. And in general, conservatives are more likely to cover up what they believe because they'll be socially shamed for saying what they believe in a way that people on the left will not. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We we hold events and discussions here, and one of the one of the pieces of feedback we get constantly is that people feel that once they're in a Menzies Research Centre discussion, they can just let their hair down. They can say what they actually think. Whereas for a lot of these people, particularly if they work say in the public service or in academia, spend most of their day suppressing what they really think. That's right. That's right. One term for it is called preference falsification. When people are systematically hiding certain aspects of belief and they don't know that everyone else is also doing it, then there's a lot of dishonesty and a lot of surprises happen. And so this is a term by, a, I think it's a political scientist named Timur Koran, um, who used it to describe how it is, say, that the Iron Curtain fell so quickly. Because in the communist countries, everybody was lying all the time. Everybody was afraid. And you know people generally hated the system. Um, and so once it began to fall, or once some people spoke up, then everybody could speak. So again, yeah, you have to. It's not. It's not uniquely that the, you know, that the that the left suppresses the right. Um, it's whoever's in power, whoever has cultural power and institution, can use it to intimidate others into submission. But that often comes back to bite them because then they don't know what people are really thinking. How do you see what you know? What we often call political correctness is fitting into this. 
Um, so my analysis of political correctness is is you have to look at every community, every group, and think what do they hold sacred. Um, so something I did mention about the righteous mind is I was very influenced by the sociologist Emil Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology. And uh, from Durkheim, I learned to look at every group and, and see what is it doing to maintain its coherence, to maintain its cohesiveness. And so religion functions within groups. Um, if people worship a god together, then they trust each other. They, they'll be loyal to each other. They can work together. They can fight as a team. They can go into battle. So religion binds small groups together. And what we see, and it's very clear, I think, in modern society, as we is actual gods uh, recede from public discussion. Um, fake gods, or or just we we treat other issues as being sacred. So in the United States, at least, you know, where I live in the academic world, um, issues of race and gender are the most sacred issues. There are sacred values, sacred beliefs, and if you contradict them, you're committing blasphemy. And if you commit blasphemy, you will be protested or shouted down. So it's not the case that anyone who's a conservative will be shouted down. Um, students don't go around saying, where's the conservative? Let's go find him and kick him off campus. It's not like that. It's just that if anyone were to say anything against affirmative action uh, or against uh, abortion rights, uh, or if anyone were to say that, say, uh, prenatal hormones affected, uh, uh, affect, you know, caused men and women to be different, if you say things like that, you are committing sacrilege. And some people, you know, most people are pretty reasonable, but there, there's a fringe, there's a, there's a group of activists on, on most campuses um, that could get very angry. And even though it's only a small number of people, everyone's afraid of them and everyone's afraid to contradict them. You've touched on, I think, for me, one of the great reference points in this, Emil Durkheim, um, The Elementary Forms of Religion. Because he talks in there, doesn't he, about, about moral believing groups uh, and, and how they enforce you know, that common wisdom, if you like, which becomes their their identity. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of examples of yeah. churches behaving like this. A Catholic church, you know, excommunicates people if they go too far, you know, at various stages. And certainly churches like, the you know, the closed brethren will, will you know, excommunicate or throw people out if, if, they, if they disagree on fundamentals. So... Are we saying here, do you think that, you know, although on the, on the left we often see political, on the right we often see political correctness as a, a way of keeping us under control, it's as much a sense, it's much designed to keep the, the group of moral believers under control, it's as much to, to keep the consensus going at university as it is to shut out outsiders? Well, uh, yes. So I think there's two ways to look at political correctness. One is, is it serving a function for a group? And so that's the analysis that you're offering there. And that's the Durkheimian analysis. So I, I agree with that. Um, and so you have to understand religions not as do they answer a person's deep questions about the universe, but rather um, what is the function of ritual and how does it keep the group strong? Uh, but there's another element to it, which is what does, uh, what does religious practice do for the individual? And here we have to look at, at what you might call the prestige economy. That is, um, how does one lose prestige or gain prestige. And so if you come out strongly against racism or sexism or anything else like that, in some settings, you'll get a lot of points for that. In others, you won't. Um, but if, it, it, especially in a, in a left-leaning academic environment, you get points for that. And if everyone is anti-racist and anti-sexist, you have to really be strongly anti-racist and anti-sexist to get more points. 
so one way to do that is to sniff out heresy. If you can find a way that somebody or some some public figure has said something that you find offensive or problematic, as the students say nowadays, and you call it out, you get points. Well, social media has immersed young people in an economy of prestige in which they get points either for being victims themselves or for finding ways that other people victimize people. So this is called a victimhood culture. It's really bad for everyone, and it's really it's hard to live uh, around people who are constantly looking for infractions and looking to punish somebody who tells a joke or wears an item of clothing that they disapprove of. But it's really bad for the students themselves because they don't learn how to actually do things or be strong or make something. They, they get very skilled in tearing each other down. Uh, and so it's kind of a, um, a descent into a sort of a war of all versus all. And, and this is a, what we call a call-out culture in which young people are really trying hard to find a way to take offense at something that someone else said. Yeah, we're moving on, we're moving on now, I think, to some of the issues that touched on in your second book, or your third book, I should say, The Coddling of the American Mind, which you published with Greg Lukianoff uh, last year. Uh, and, and I think this, this along with uh, Frank Faridi's book, Whatever Happened to the University, I think are the two books that really, for me, give me most clarity about what's going on in the modern universities, uh, particularly in the way that you relate the safe spaces and the, the, the safe speech, the shutting down of dangerous arguments in inverted commas. You relate that to a gen, you know, more broad mm-hmm. uh, cultural phenomena of, of safety. It's almost a fetish we have now over safety, isn't it? Yeah. We want to keep kids safe. I, th- I thought there was one story in there that was great about the, America's worst mum. Yeah. So uh, there's a wonderful woman named Lenore Skenazy, and she's a journalist uh, in New York City. And in uh, 2009, I think it was, when her son Izzy was nine years old, um, Izzy was fascinated by the New York subway system, as many boys are. My son, when we moved to New York in 2011, he memorized the subway system so much faster than I did. He was five at the time. So um, Izzy had been advocating for his mother to let him take a subway ride by himself. And finally, one day, when Izzy was nine, she said, okay. Um, she gave him uh, a quarter to use a payphone. Uh, she gave him a map, although he knew the system. Uh, she called her husband uh, back at their home. She, she was shopping at a department store with his son. She said, okay, Izzy's going to come home. Look for him at a certain time. So Izzy went down. Uh, she, uh, he went through the subway turnstile himself, got on the train himself, got off at his station, went home, and was thrilled. Um, and that's great. Well, that should be the end of the story, except that because Lenore is a journalist, she talked about it. She wrote an article about it. She talked about it, and then uh, newspapers and TV stations wanted to interview her about it. You let your son ride the subway? And some parents were thrilled, but most were outraged. And she was labeled America's worst mom by one of the TV stations. It's a name that she has uh, proudly displayed in all of her marketing materials that she was voted America's worst mom for basically letting her son do what pretty much all of us did when we were that age. You know, until the 1990s, we all could go outside. We could ride the subway. Um, And, you know, I grew up in America during the crime wave. Crime skyrocketed in the late 60s and stayed high until the early 90s. And it just mysteriously disappeared, or at least the rates dropped way down. Um, So uh, New York was already quite safe by the time that our letter son do this. Uh, But it was an important event because it's really forced us to, to, to think, what are we doing 
what are we protecting our kids from, and what's the cost of that protection? Well, we now know the cost of the protection is a generation that is being crippled by anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide. Suicide rates are, are moving up very rapidly for boys and especially for girls. We've raised a generation that is fragile, that is not ready to leave home. Uh, we've overprotected them, and we've denied them the opportunities to learn normal human skills of independence. You raise in there the concept of uh, immunisation. You know that we, we immunise people against against diseases like measles by essentially giving them a dose of measles, and and that in, in a sense we we're, we're taking away the immunisation from the harsh nature of of life when we try and protect kids from it at a young age, and they never learn to live with it. Is that essentially how how you see yep, it? Exactly. Well, that's right. So the key concept, the most important concept in the book, and the most the most important concept I can give to your listeners is the concept of anti-fragility. Uh, that is, um, human beings are anti-fragile. So some things are fragile, like a glass is fragile, and if a kid drops it, the glass will break. So we give kids plastic cups or sippy cups uh, because they're resilient. And if a kid drops a plastic cup, it doesn't break. But it doesn't get better. There are only a few things in the world that have to get dropped. They have to get dropped or kicked around in order to develop normal strength. And the immune system is the best example. If you protect your kids' immune systems, if you say, don't play in dirt, don't go out there, there are germs, let me wash your hands with antibacterial soap, you are you're going to cripple the kids' immune system because the immune system requires challenge in order to know what to react to. Now, some parts of our bodies are fragile, so your eyes are fragile. Uh, your eyes don't get stronger if you scratch them. But the immune system is the opposite. The immune system requires challenge and, and, and damage even, or even a threat to get stronger. And so the question is, what is what is children's basic social nature? Are your kids going to come out better if you protect them from all disappointment, all teasing, and all conflict? Of course not. Kids need a lot of that. They need thousands and thousands of conflicts. They need to lose in games thousands of times. But instead, you know, my kids play, you know, like when there's a game at school, they really try to hide who won and who lost. They try, they don't want to, they don't want the kids to suffer from losing. But that's just that, God, don't get me started. Well, of course you're getting started. You're interviewing me. Um, that, that, this that, is a pervasive problem. Yeah. That we, and it leads yeah, we on think to, that We think we're doing kids a favor by, yeah. Yeah. And it leads on to universities, doesn't it? This is, you, you see this flowing through universities in, in, in the concepts of safe spaces, trigger warnings trying to protect, you know, shut down dangerous or, or, or inappropriate ideas. That's the same instinct, is it? Exactly. That's right. That's right. So for one thing, um, Gen Z, when G, so Gen Z is the kids born in 1996 and later. Uh, this is a very important, This is everyone has to understand this. A lot of people still seem to think that college students are millennials. They are not. But the millennial generation is kids born between 1982 and 1995, plus or minus a year. Uh, kids born in 1996 had a very different childhood. The millennials did not get social media until they were in college. Facebook was only for college students at first. Um, Gen Z is kids born in 1996 and later. And their childhood was really different because they got onto social media in middle school, like around the ages of 11, 12, 13. And social media, so screen time turns out to not be so bad for kids. It's not like... You know, watching an iPad is not that different from watching a movie on TV, but it's social media specifically that seems to be causing the problem and seems to be especially harmful for girls. So 
so at any rate, we have a, a generation coming into college. They arrive on college campuses in 2014, and they start saying, give us safe spaces. Give us warnings if you're going to assign a book that has racism in it or that has, that has you know, a Greek myth that has uh, Zeus raping uh, you know, a, a woman. You can't just give this to college students and expect them to read it. You have to warn them that it's coming. And we were all very puzzled by this. We couldn't understand it. Um, but now it's clear there was a changing of the generation. And Gen Z is much more fragile than any previous generation. Um, we denied them the chance. We denied them a lot of uh, independent time, independent play. We oversupervised them, and they spent most of their teen years just sitting on their bed, interacting by social media. They didn't get a chance to develop normal human interaction skills. Gen Z just began to graduate from American universities in 2018, so they've only been in the corporate world for one year now. But already we're hearing the same thing. Managers say, I'm completely exhausted. It's constant conflict. They need protection from this. They want me to punish that. Somebody told a joke, and now the whole company's in an uproar. So uh, we have a real problem in this country. It's pretty much the same in Canada. It's the same in Britain, although not quite as bad. Uh, and my question is whether it's happening in Australia. My sense is that there are hints of it, but it's not nearly as bad. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, I, I, it seems pretty bad from, from here, but, but I think you're probably right. In an international context, we, we probably get some things, do some things better and some things worse, actually. But I'll be looking forward to your observations on that when you, you come here in July. Uh, I know your time is precious, so I won't keep you much longer, except I will just ask you on this just question of universities. You put some empirical evidence in your book around what most of us perceive, and that is that universities are getting more left or the, or the staff are becoming even more yes, dominantly. And, and That's the, right. what, do you, what I like about the way you approach this topic is you, you present some prosaic or, or some, some practical reasons why that might be happening instead of this idea of this, mm-hmm. that people talk about, you know, this march through the institutions that people have often put up as the idea, which always seems to me to be yeah. a little bit too... A little bit too organized and planned. I'm not sure that culture works that way. What do you think? No, that's right. So, um, so I'm a social scientist who studies morality. And one thing I've learned is that as soon as you put a moral lens on something, you get stupider. Your IQ drops. You lose the ability to think about subtlety. And so, you know, I used to be on the left, um, um, you know, almost all social scientists are on the left, except for economics, where it's only it's a four to one ratio left to right, which is OK by me. But my field is 20 to one left to right. Psychology is 20 to one left to right. So um, so, you know, I'm trying to understand what's happening to universities and I don't put a good evil lens on it. Uh, you know, universities are evolving. They're evolving in ways such that they become more politicized, which means it's um, it's harder for them to find the truth especially in the social sciences, at least. And I'm trying to do something about that. So I co-founded an organization called Heterodox Academy. Uh, If there are any professors uh, or university administrators listening, I urge you to go to heterodoxacademy.org and uh, um, sign up. Uh, I'll be, in fact, I'm going to try to organize a meetup of all the, we've got several dozen Australian professors in the organization. We've got 2,700 professors overall, mostly in the United States. Uh, and, you know, we're, we actually are evenly balanced between the left and the right. We're not a political organization. We're a group of professors who love the academy and want it to be vibrant. Uh, we want to do a great job with research and teaching. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the idea of the long march through the institutions, you know, I mean, 
you know, maybe there's some group, some cabal planning it somewhere, but I, I think usually you can get a lot further if you just try to look at things sort of mechanistically with a good understanding of psychology and like, how does this happen? Well, thank you, John. We, we'll get, we'll make sure we get that website on our, uh, we'll, we'll get a reference to your website on our website. Uh, and also another, another link that people might need is thinkinc.org.au. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-C.org.au who are organising your visit here with events in Melbourne on July 21st and Sydney on July 25th. Look, I'm really looking forward to your visit. Uh, we could talk for hours, but of course you, your time is precious. So we look forward to hearing more from you when you come. And thank you very much for joining us on Water Cooler. Oh, well, thank you so much, Nick. It's been a pleasure talking with you and I'm, I'm so excited to come to Australia. I've never been, but I've also never heard an American come back from Australia and say a single bad word about it. I'm sure you won't be the first. Thank, thank you, John. Thank you for listening to that edition of The Water Cooler. If you enjoyed it, please give us five stars and visit us on menziesrc.org.